this was hard to understand. I'm not sure I totally have a handle on it yet, but you can tell me at the end of the, the lecture. No questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for laughter. Thank you. Father, your word tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And surely our laughter, that belly laugh, just like when our children laugh a belly laugh, it brings joy uh, to our hearts. I imagine the same is true for you. So thank you for that laughter. Thank you how laughter renews and refreshes our soul. And I pray that the word uh, that you have to speak to us today would renew and refresh our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the first six verses of Hebrews 3, uh, the author presents for us the example of Jesus, particularly his example of faithfulness, with these words. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So in this passage, the purpose of this passage is to do two things. One is exp exposition, which we've talked about what that word is, and the other is exhortation. He is giving us both exhortation and exposition. The exhortation is an encouragement to fix our eyes, fix our thoughts, excuse me, he'll say eyes later, fix our thoughts on Jesus, as, on Jesus as an example. Consider Jesus as the supreme example of faithfulness. But within this exhortation is also exo exposition where he is expounding on who Jesus is. Where he is telling us, as he, as he has already told us in the first two chapters, that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now he's telling us that Jesus is greater than Moses. In his words, he is worthy, Jesus is worthy of greater honor, even than Moses. And one thing you probably should understand is he's speaking to Jewish believers primarily. And Moses is revered in the Jewish tradition. And well, he should be. Abraham, Moses, I mean, they're, they're, the, they're the top. And so to say that Jesus is worthy of greater honor, he's not denigrating Moses in any way. He's giving Moses his full due, just like he gave the angels their full due. He's saying if, if, if Moses is that great, think how much greater Jesus must be to be greater than Moses. So his exhortation is fix your thoughts on Jesus. He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts, I'm sorry, I keep saying eyes, on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. That, that word, fix your thoughts, means consider carefully. Think about. Notice and observe. So this isn't a passing thought. This is an intentional considering 
of the example of Jesus, and that example is his faithfulness. The faithfulness of Jesus, who remained true to the purpose to which God called him, even to death. Um, and then he, he begins this comparison to Moses, and he says he was faithful um, as a servant over God's house. That is a quote from Numbers 12:7 that Moses was faithful, and, and he's saying Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful. Now, God's house specifically means God's people, and he's going to make that clear and just we are God's house what he means is he was a he was faithful over God's people the congregation of believers and he's going to go on to call us that house this is really key because uh, throughout the passage that that we're going to look at this this uh, from this week look at today there is an emphasis on community there is an emphasis on believers living together and that that is part of the faithfulness in fact, we see it in the very first words of this chapter where he calls believers sharers in the heavenly calling. That word sharers could be uh, translated companions. Companions in the heavenly calling. In other words, it is a picture of the intimacy we have with one another as we walk through this journey of faith. Um, just one of you this morning came out of small group and said, I'm better now. It's that intimacy we have with one another. It's that sharing we have with one another where we uh, walk along the same uh, faith. We are co-sojourners. We are co-sojourners on this pilgrimage of faith. And then he goes on to give us the basis of this exhortation in verses 3 through the first part of verse 6. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Um, and then we'll get to that last part in just a minute. So what he's saying here is that Jesus is worthy of even greater honor than Moses. He's contrasting now Jesus and Moses. And he begins with an architectural analogy saying, look, if you, if you look at a house, the, per, the person that should get the glory for that house is the builder of the house. You don't look at the house and say, look what that house did. No, you look and you go, who's that builder? I want him to build my house. Uh, and Jesus is the builder of that house, and, and, and so he's worthy of greater honor. Moses was a part of God's house. He was a leader in God's house, but he was part of the house. He was part of the body of believers. Jesus is, in fact, the creator, the builder of that house. And, and then he says, God is the builder of everything. Think about this for a minute. This is what George Guthrie says about this. The inference to which the analogy points is that Jesus, as God, has made Moses a member of the people of Israel and as creator is worthy of more honor and glory than one of his creatures. Thus the author continues to point to Jesus as God. This is an inference that Jesus is God. It's just, uh, it's more subtle. But that is indeed what the author is saying. And so 
then he finally says in the contrast of their roles that Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Jesus was faithful as a son over the house. And so he's therefore worthy of greater honor. And then in verse 6b, oh, how did that happen? We'll go back. He says, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Now, this is an interesting sentence because it's a conditional statement. And so I want to begin, as I think I do a lot, I didn't realize this, but I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that we are part of God's family. We are saved if and only if we persevere. Somehow we have to earn it. We have to persevere in order to be saved. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense because it's wrong theology. Uh, and that would contradict the whole of Scripture. And in fact, because in Greek, the perfect tense, and a perfect tense is like uh, to put have, has, or had in front of something, uh, is only determined by, not by the text, but by the context. Uh, it, this, this sentence probably means we have become a part of God's house if we persevere. In other words, perseverance to the end is a characteristic of true faith. That, that is something believers do. That is an outgrowth of our faith, is that we will persevere. We will persevere because we have been saved, because we have been made part of God's house. Um, now, that, that picture he gives of holding on to faith is a beautiful word picture of holding tightly to something, to having a tight grip on it so that we don't slip, or, or to use his analogy from last week, drift away from our faith. So keeping a, a, a firm grip on courage and on the hope that we have in Jesus. What an encouraging word to a group of believers that is struggling with persecution that would be. What an encouraging word that is to any believer in any situation to hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus. So our author is very concerned that his hearers are going to be tempted to slip back, to drift away from their faith, or, or to use the analogy I used last week, to begin coasting, attempting to coast uphill. And, and this is further seen in the next part of uh, the chapter in verses 7 through 19, where he says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my anger, they will never enter my rest or never be allowed to enter my rest or words to that effect. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were, who were they who heard the, and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter 
because of their unbelief. So in this passage, I just want to give you the gist of this passage. He begins with a, uh, a lengthy quotation from Psalm 95. In fact, Psalm 95, 7c to uh, verse 11. And that psalm, that portion of that psalm will provide the backdrop for the rest of what we're going to talk about today. But to give you some context of that psalm, uh, the first six verses and, part, and the first part of the seventh verse are a call to worship God. And then after he calls them to worship God, he gives them this warning of do not harden your hearts against God, which is just a reminder, uh, I believe, a very poignant reminder that worship is a good thing, but only if it proceeds from an honest and authentic heart, a sincere and obedient heart. So he begins with this exhortation. He says, so, as the Holy Spirit says. So if he says so, that means it's based on something uh, he's just said. And so he's saying, since this is true, since if we are believers, we will persevere, we need to pay attention to this warning. Do not harden your hearts to God's voice, to God's call on your life. Have a softened heart that is ready to listen. In other words, don't be like the Israelites, is what he's saying. He's giving a negative example of the wandering Israelites. Don't be like them, who despite seeing God provide for them time, miraculously, time and time again. In fact, uh, where God says in this, he says that they tested me for 40 years, and for 40 years saw what I did, despite the fact that I provided for them, and they saw it, and they knew it, they still, uh, they still rebelled against me. They still hardened their hearts and refused to obey. They tested God and refused to enter the land when God told them he had given it to them. He had given it to them as a place of rest. God's intention was for them to enter the land and settle it so that they wouldn't have to keep moving around forever. It would be their rest. And over and over again in the Old Testament, the land is referred to as God's rest, as his place of rest, as a resting place. Now, in case you don't really understand the story, I'm going to give you the shortest version of it you've ever heard. Moses led the people out of Egypt to go to the promised land. They wandered around. They had some problems. They got to the gate of the land. They sent in spies, including Joshua and Caleb, to spy out the land. They came back. Ten of the spies said, no way. They're big. They're strong. They're fortified. There's no way we can take this land. We're not going in. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can do it. Not because we're so strong, but because we serve a mighty God who has promised it to us, who has given us food and water uh, in the desert. He can do it for us. The people listened to the ten rather than the two and refused. So God said, Joshua, Caleb, you get to go in. The rest of you will wander in the desert till the last of you over 20 dies. And the people then went, whoa, no, wait, God, your kids ever do this? I didn't mean it when they say, yeah, give me your phone. Oh, mom, didn't mean it. Didn't mean it. Didn't, oh, too bad. Give me your phone. And that's what God said. God said, that's too bad. And so then they said, we'll prove to you we don't mean it. We'll go take the land. That was a disaster because they didn't have God then. So that's the, that's the story in a nutshell. That's what God's talking about in this 
Psalm 95. They were to settle the land and experience rest. Now, later, under Joshua and Caleb, they did settle the land. It wasn't as easy, uh, but they did settle the land. And so that's why it says they were denied entrance into the land. They were not able to go into the land because they did try, but God did not allow them. And this psalm tells us, or, or this this these verses in Hebrews tell us that they were denied entrance into the land because of their faithlessness, because of their lack of belief. So he's saying, make sure you don't harden your heart. Make sure you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Rather, hold firm to the end. Now, I'd just like to make a few brief points about this passage uh, because we've got a lot more to get through in a short time. The first, there are two exhortations in this passage. The first exhortation is do not harden your hearts. That concept of hardening your hearts means a refusal to obey. It means, being, it means obstinate, deliberate disobedience. It means willfully following one's own, own plans. I've heard God. I know what he said. I'm doing what I want. It's the picture of a tempestuous two-year-old looking you straight in the eye and going, No! That's what it is. That's hard. You, I mean, you've seen, all of y'all are moms, you've seen hardened hearts. That's what it is, spiritually, with God. He still loves us. I don't know why, but he still loves us. The Israelites are exhibit A of hardened hearts. The second exhortation is to encourage one another daily. This is important because what he's saying is, how do we keep from having hardened hearts? How do we hold firmly to the end? Ladies, none of us was created to be a spiritual lone ranger, particularly we as women. We are created to be in a community, and it is the encouragement of other members of that community that helps us hold firm, that gives us courage when we need it, that, uh, that reminds us, again, if we're willing to listen, don't harden your heart. Don't say no to God. Hold fast. And that encouraging one another daily, that, that consistent encouragement is so important Living in community with other believers is the antidote to a hardened heart. It is the antidote to turning away. And then he gives this warning that is similar to the one he already gave that says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firm in the end. This is the <coughs> same idea. Uh, he's saying that, that holding firm to the end is evidence that we have come to know Christ, that we are saved. It's not a requirement to earn salvation. It's evidence we already have. And in both of these warnings, the author is recognizing that in any body of believers anywhere, there are some who aren't there yet. There are some who are coming, who are interested, who maybe think that they're there yet, that aren't, but there are some who have in some way hardened their hearts and they aren't believers yet. And so he wants to make sure that all of his hearers hear this warning. Don't harden your heart. Hold fast 
to the end. So uh, we've already learned that they were denied rest. They were denied, the Israelites were denied entrance into the land, which was known as rest, even though they tried, which was an utter failure. Why? It was because of their disobedience, their disobedience stemming from their unbelief. Their disobedience was an outgrowth of their unbelief. And this is what um, Dr. Guthrie says about this. He says, in short, the hearers are not to follow the example of those who fell in the desert, but are to hold firmly to their Christian confidence, keeping a soft heart and a vigilance against sin. They accomplish this in part by encouraging one another during this present age in which they have opportunity, in other words, today, to respond obediently to God's voice. So we move on to chapter 4. Uh, well, we will move on in a minute, but first I want to talk about this idea of cultivating faithfulness in our own <laughs> lives. How is it that we fix our thoughts on Jesus? How do we cultivate that kind of faithfulness? And our author is telling us, first and foremost, focus on Christ. Our faithfulness is encouraged as we focus on Christ and his example of faithfulness through study of his word, which is what you're doing, through meditation on his word, through worship, both private and corporate, and through prayer. All of those things enable us to focus our thoughts on Jesus and cultivate our faithfulness to God. Faithfulness is only faithfulness if it is lived out. Faithfulness manifests itself, makes itself known most clearly as endurance all the way to the end of the path God has laid out for us. And particularly, it is laid out in the context of an encouraging community of faith. We were never intended to walk this path alone. And we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk alongside us. But obedience is, off, uh, is also da a daily thing. Everyday obedience which reminds me of another one of my favorite funny Christian women, Patsy Claremont, who says, the problem with life is it's just so daily. <laughs> <laughs> Obedience to God is not lived out up in front of people. It's not lived out so much in public because we tend to put on a better us in public, which scares me for some of the people I've seen in Walmart, but we won't get into that. That's your better face, but anyway, obedience to God is lived out in the daily, often mundane experiences of life over a long period of time. And it is often lived out without instant gratification. Again, parents get this. Don't expect them to thank you. I get up every morning and make what you would say is a really fabulous breakfast. My kids think it's awful because it's not Cap'n Crunch. They'd just rather have Cap'n Crunch instead of homemade omelets and, and from scratch, you know, biscuits and all that stuff. No, no, no. I don't expect them to thank me. There's no instant gratification, and oftentimes it's that way in our walk of faith. I do pray one day they will rise up and call me blessed. <laughs> just not today. Faith 
Faithfulness is volitional. It is a choice that we make to follow and obey. And of course, that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The simple old hymn really is true. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So our author is going to continue to draw on Psalm 95 as we go into chapter 4 with a message that is is intended to bring more encouragement to his hearers. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have heard the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. So the promise of rest still stands. God still promises his people rest. By the way, this is the first place in Hebrews where we hear this word promise, and we will hear it again uh, throughout the, the letter of Hebrews. So he begins with therefore, and he gives an exhortation. He says, therefore, since the promise of rest, uh, entering his rest still stands, So since we still have this promise, then let us be careful that none of you have been found to to have fallen short of it. So that's the exhortation he gives. Do not be found to have fallen short. Now, in this exhortation, he is referring um, to those who do not know Christ. Because those who do know Christ won't fall short of that rest. But he recognizes again that there are some within his hearers that don't know Jesus yet. And so he's telling them, he's exhorting them in strong words, don't be found fallen short of it. Make a firm commitment to Jesus. So this promise provides both the motive for the exhortation. Because this promise exists, grab it. And it also provides the encouragement and encouragement for hearers. This promise is still available to you. What an encouragement that is. And the basis for this encouragement is, look, the Israelites heard the same message. It did them no good. Don't be like the Israelites. You've heard the message. Now respond in faith. Don't be faithless. Hearing is not enough. We must respond. We must have faith. This is a serious warning, and in fact, the English translations, most of the English translations, if you have the ESV, it's stronger. But the NIV says, be careful, be careful. Actually, literally, that says, let us fear. He is asking them to to have a reverent awe and fear of God that causes us to want to not miss out on the rest, that causes us to respond. The author's point is to awaken a godly fear in his hearers so that they will be aware of the seriousness of their situation and be moved to persevere. This is a serious, serious warning. That's exhortation. Giving somebody an encouragement designed to motivate them. So he says that we ought to have a reverence and an awe for God. And I'm telling you, he's, he's, he's he's communicating Um, that that we need to fear God in the most holy sense. But I don't think that that is a characteristic that our generation has really figured out. We like to think of God as the big guy upstairs, you know, or our buddy or whatever. 
And, and I don't think we ought, I mean, take a look at scripture. Everyone who ever came into any sort of close contact with God ended up on their faces. And, and Isaiah said, woe is me. Those were the first words out of his lips. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean clean lips. I think people picture they're going to go to heaven and they're, gonna, they're like going to have like a, a, well, now it would be a PowerPoint. <laughs> Look, let me give you the 25 reasons why you should let me in, God. No, no. None of us are going to be arguing with God. We will know he is right and we will fall on our faces before him. He is God and we are to reverence him. And, and so I'd like to encourage you, I'd like to exhort you in worship, whether privately or corporately, are you engaging? Are you worshiping with your whole heart sincerely? Sometimes I have to reproach myself because I'm mouthing words that are like, you know, Take, take all of me, take everything that I am, while I'm going, take everything. No, no, that's condemnable. Are we engaging God with reverence and awe, not casually, mind and body, immersing ourselves in it? Now, some of you have little kids, and that just kind of is impossible. I got to be really honest with you. There was a time when we sat in a different part of the sanctuary every week because I didn't want Lane to ruin the same people's worship every week. <laughs> And, and uh, if you're in that age group where, you know, your kids are just, it's just really impossible to worship with them, then find a time of private worship. Find a time where you just come before God and worship God in reverence and awe for who he is and what he has done. So then in verses 3 to 5, he gives us this verbal analogy. Remember, verbal analogy is where our author takes one word from one part of Scripture and the same word from another part of Scripture, and he connects them because he believes that God is a systematic God who has communicated to us consistently and systematically. And so those two passages can be related together. And in verses 3 through 5, he says, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. How much sense does that make? It does. Uh, and yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So he takes this word rest and he connects, connects Genesis 2-2 and Psalm 95. To actually the other way around, Psalm 95 and Genesis 2-2 to one another. And this is hard to figure out, so I'm just going to kind of back up and let you understand what he's trying to say. Psalm 95, where he is saying, you get to enter the rest because God said you never get to enter my rest, right? That's what he's saying, and how much sense does that make? What he's saying is he's reminding them that a real place of rest must exist because if it did not exist, he couldn't deny someone entrance to it. You can't deny someone entrance into a place, who doesn't, a place that doesn't exist. And so just the fact that he denied it to the Israelites means there is a rest and that some will enter that rest. It's intended to bring encouragement. And then Genesis 2 is quoted to show that that rest existed both before and after the time of the Exodus, the time of the Israelites' disobedience and they're wandering in the desert. That offer of rest ha was there before and is there now. It has existed. Um, 
And then there are two emphases in this, and we're going to see this in a minute, but he's trying to make two primary points here. The first one is, is that God's promise of rest is not something of the past. It still stands. And the second emphasis he is making is that in it, by its very nature, it involves the cessation of work, of resting from one's labors. So he's going to go out and, and flat out tell us that the rest still stands, the promise of rest still stands. It still remains for some that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later, he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall short by following their example of disobedience. So he says, since therefore, in the Greek it says since therefore, we're getting an implication of the analogy. Since this is true, since this promise of rest still stands, Psalm 95 clearly bears witness to the fact that the promise of God's rest was not fulfilled by entrance into the land. It was intended as a foreshadowing, as a type of real rest, of true rest that God would offer his people. Because if that would have fulfilled the promise of rest, it would have been fulfilled when the people entered the land. When David wrote Psalm 95, it was hundreds of years after that. And so that couldn't have been fulfilled. Here's, here's his line of reasoning, and I've written, I've written out most of this for you, but just to follow the line of reasoning of this argument. David lived long after the Israelites had come into the land. God, through David, offered rest to those who believe in Psalm 95. God, through David, offered that rest. The promise was given in Psalm 95 because entrance into the land by the Israelites under Joshua and Caleb did not fulfill the original promise of rest. Therefore, there still exists a rest for God's people. And the essence of this rest is resting from one's own work, as God did on the seventh day. So what is this word today? God said another day, called today. What does that mean? That word today is not a specific day, like 24-hour day, but it is the time in which we are living, in which the author of Hebrews lived, and which we now live, where this offer of rest is still available to us from now until Christ's return or our death. But as long as it's available, while you still have the opportunity, this is an urgent appeal, while you still have the opportunity, take the offer of rest and come to know Jesus before it's too late. It's beautiful how he mentions Joshua in this, for if Joshua could have offered rest, because he's, he is, his hearers would have immediately uh, connected that to Jesus because you see Joshua is in Hebrew is the name Yeshua. Joshua is the Anglicanized, I think, form of Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek form 
of Yeshua. I have a great story about the first time I held Joshua, but that's my Joshua. But I can't tell that now. Someday. It's the same name. And so when he said, because the Old Testament, Yeshua could not offer you rest, they would have immediately realized he was saying, but there's another Yeshua. And his promise of rest still stands. And he has the power to make good on that promise. Um, so what is the rest? That's an important question. And there is disagreement uh, on this. I'll tell you what I think. I'm not a scholar. I could be wrong. But I think the author is primarily talking about the rest we will experience in heaven. I think he's talking about our final rest, the reality of heaven, when we will rest from our labor and, and rest from the trials and the problems of this world. Now, some would say that we've already entered into that rest partially, and I'm not going to discount that because Jesus, I mean, this is Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I'm not going to discount that. I do think he's primarily talking about heaven. I was going to give you a number of reasons for that, but due to time, I'm not going to do that. Um, but know that Jesus' promise of rest, at very least, includes an eternal home in heaven for us. And then we end with this wonderful passage, two verses on the, on the power of God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So he starts with the word therefore, for. So based on what he has just said, the reason we are to make every effort to enter God's rest is because his word can judge not just our words and deeds, but our very thoughts, intentions, and attitudes. He already knows it all. We can't play games with God. And we will stand before him someday, and we will be helpless under his omniscient gaze. Therefore, since that is true, we need to heed the call to come to Christ. This is what P.T. O'Brien said. It is the living, effective, and piercing word of God that today addresses the author and his listeners, calling them to obedience and faithfulness. So the word of God, his logos, is the word, or logos is the word in Greek, is the message of God, the word he has spoken. Remember how the argument began way back in the first verse of Hebrews, that God has spoken, first through the prophets in the past, through everything that is in the Old Testament, and now through his Son, continuing with everything that is in the New Testament. It is a message whose origin is God. And it is living. It is alive. And by the way, that's actually the first word of this passage, or the first word of that sentence, that it is alive is the word of God. And, that, and he does that, Greek writers do that, to put emphasis on something. So he wants us to know that God's word is living. It is alive. 
It is not outdated. It is not dead. It is alive. It is dynamic because its source is the living God. It is powerful. It is both living and life-giving. It can examine, discern, and judge if we let it. It is active. It is effective. It is able to penetrate to the deepest recesses of our beings. Every part of our existence, he says, it penetrates soul and spirit. That's our psyche. That's our, so, our spiritual and psychological being. Joints and marrow, that's our physical being. It penetrates every part of us. And even the heart, which is the seat of our, of our thoughts and our will. We've already been told, do not harden your hearts. We've already been told, do not have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Now we learn that God, through his word, has the power to penetrate even our hearts, our thoughts and intentions are all open to God. Therefore, our hearts better be right with God because we will stand before him someday. All of which means that God's word has the power to change us. That's an encouragement to, to believers both then and now. I can picture the, the believers of the author's day who were torn between pressing on and turning back. And the powerful truth that God knows everything about us and still loves us and still offers us rest and one day we will stand before him would be a wonderful, encouraging, and motivating truth to press on. One day we will stand before him as well. And that should motivate us too. Today, if you've heard his voice, I, I pray that this has been an encouragement to you to know um, that God loves you and has provided a rest for you and he desires that you persevere to that rest. I hope it's been encouragement to persevere in the faith and to fix your thoughts on Jesus and to live in a community of believers that is encouraging. But I am aware that there may be some of you here that that scares you to death because you do know you're going to stand before God someday and you're not sure what will happen at that time. If that is you, if that thought scares you and doesn't encourage you, if the thought of a rest makes you think, what if I've fallen short? Man, I would love to talk to you about that. And I know your small group leader would love to talk to you about that. I'm not going to have anyone close eyes and raise hands and come forward. But I would love to have a chance to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your promise of rest. The older I get, the more grateful I am for it, and the more I'm looking forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for sticking with me today. <coughs>